Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. If you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, now's the time with our best offer ever. Sign up today and you'll pay just £1 a month for the next six months, giving you unrivaled insight and analysis of everything Euro 2020 and taking you well into the new Premier League season two. The Athletic is the only place you can read pieces by award-winning writers like Michael Cox, Rafa Honigstein, Amy Lawrence and Daniel Taylor. And when you subscribe, you'll also get ad-free versions of all of The Athletic's podcasts from across its audio network. Head to theathletic.com slash totally and become a subscriber today for six quid until the end of the year. That's theathletic.com slash totally. All aboard for a manic Monday at those Euros. Good afternoon, passengers. This is a pre-boarding announcement for Boom! Croatia, Spain, madder than a Tottenham manager wish list and just as many unlikely goals. Think that was fun? Hold my chocolat show, say France and Switzerland with a game which starts with the French complaining about Longley, so no change there, and ends with the Swiss summer loving and in the quarterfinals. Coming up today, England, Germany, also Sweden, Ukraine, but also England, Germany, plus on this day with another vintage slice of Euro history. It's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Why football? You spoil us. Day of days on Monday and England-Germany on its way this Tuesday evening. And Daniel Story and Carl Anker here with us to talk about all of that and more. Hello, boys. Hi, James. Hi, James. Hi, Carl. Hi, Carl. Crikey. We're, we're kind of, we're cranked right now. I think that's probably the expression because of the football and, you know, the long wait to England, Germany this afternoon. Uh, we can while away with, with, with some talk of, frankly, one of the most extraordinary days of tournament football uh, ever. I have made noises I did not realise I was possible making watching Monday's games. It's sensational sensational duo of knockout matches the Catalina wine mixes of uh, European Championship football what do you think Daniel yeah I mean the the greatest day of tournament football in my lifetime without a doubt uh, I have been a staunch critic of the format of this tournament but I am blessed to have had a la- round of last 16 matches I can certainly say that because um, just on every level the games, the kind of pulling you in with the narrative, making you make conclusions about certain players who then make those look foolish 10 minutes later and then make you realise you may be right 20 minutes later to just that gut-wrenching drama at the end and upsets. Uh, yeah, just a fantastic, fantastic day of football. It's the kind of toing and froing ups and downs that we're accustomed to in the course of a season, but compressed into 90 minutes, but then in back-to-back matches, which is extraordinary. And then when you add in, say, the holders going out yesterday and then the, the World Cup holders going out here and, and, and the scare that, that the Spanish had in the, the first game. So both games were 3-3 at 90 minutes after last-minute equalisers. Both games followed the exact same scoring pattern with the underdog scoring first and then going behind and then coming roaring back. Just amazing. Of course, it was Croatia-Spain uh, with a 5-3 win for Spain eventually in the early match. We'll come to that shortly, but we'll probably start with... Uh, France, Switzerland, 3-3 after extra time and then the penalties in Bucharest and (laughs) they'll need to. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, let's start then with the extraordinary events which saw Switzerland putting out the French. 
You're listening to the Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. France 3, Switzerland 3 after extra time. Switzerland then winning the penalty shootout and through to their first quarter final of a tournament since 1954. Uh, they, like Croatia earlier on, on Monday, taking a surprise lead. And if you've ever wondered how you say underdog in Swiss German, well, well here's your answer. So that was the Swiss taking their lead. And the French were all over the shop in the first half. But when the second half got underway and Kingsley Coman came on, it looked like the world champions had got their mojo back. But then what happened? Ex- explain, if you can, this crazy match. So, I think what was interesting was, was the initial lineup from Deschamps playing this sort of 3-5-2 with wing-backs and Rabiot as a left wing-back, which is tactically perverse, if I'm going to be mean about it. Uh, Kingsley Coman came on uh, and they made, they made adaptations and eventually half-time came on and they sort of played a, a 4-4-2. And... This is, I'd say, up until you know when France were three one up. This was very much a Didier Deschamps France game, right? This is this is what Deschamps has been trying to get France to do ever since they lost the Euro twenty sixteen final. Which is, even though he has an abundance of footballing resources and has the ability to unleash so many different players that could possibly beat most teams in the world five three, what he tends to do is use all of those resources to suppress the opposition. So, France have a team that on most days have 50% more talent than every other team on the planet. And then maybe Deschamps creates a system where they work to maybe 10% of that advantage. And I think the the two-minute spell where it looks as if Switzerland are going to up with a penalty, Lurie saves it, and then Karim Benzema has a fantastic moment of intuitive invention to, to get the equaliser. is a very good example of Deschamps football, which is I'm going to stop you from doing chaotic, freakish things. And then in the space where you are wondering, what do we do when there's no space? One of my superstars will catch fire and do something amazing. And when you're France, mm. you can do that because you have Didier Deschamps, you have Kylian Mbappe, you have Paul Pogba, you have N'Golo Kante, you have the largest collection of superstars in international football. So you can really spend the better part of 60 minutes just going, no, I'm going to hold your arm's length. And then when one of these players decides they're going to be brilliant, they're going to be brilliant. And that's worked for a long time for France. That's worked for a long time to a lesser extent for Portugal. And that is why Gareth Southgate's England play in that form style of play. What went wrong here, I think, was just Switzerland was so much better off the ball, right? Switzerland, rather than go, oh, we're not being allowed to play football in the spaces we want to play, went, what is the solution? What is the alternative? If there's no space in these central areas, can we get the space out wide? If there's no space out wide, can Granit Xhaka play more ambitious passes? And they slowly turned the screw in a way that France have been trying to stop for so long. That four-minute spell, though, was extraordinary. As we mentioned, Switzerland had had taken the lead and looked set to take a 2-0 lead except Ricardo Rodriguez's penalty kick was pretty woeful. And then when France swept up the other end and Benzema, within about two minutes, had scored a brace, the first of which was an extraordinarily skillful bit of play, it really looked like the Swiss chance was was over. But it wasn't. For them to come back from that, Daniel, was extraordinary. Yeah, but I mean, the, the French were defensively lax for, for all the game. I mean, the the... Swiss threat in this tournament, or their main creative threat, has been Steven Zuber as their uh, left wing back getting forward. And yet Benjamin Pavard was was staying high up the pitch. Pogba was playing on the right side, initially on the right side of the central midfield. And obviously he has a licence to move forward. And there was just a big gap where Zuber was running into. And that's where the first goal came from. Obviously Pavard then... Zuber then does Pavard for the, for the penalty to give him the second chance. But even when... Even when France had that three-one lead, they—I don't always think this happens. I think it's sometimes a bit simplistic to say it, but I think France thought they were through. I, I really do. Mm-hmm. I think they thought that they the the the, the miss penalty made them wake up and think, "Hang on a minute, we, we can't just coast this one. We're going to really have to push it." And they pushed it. And I think at the point that they got a two-goal lead, they thought, "Right, we can coast it again." And Switzerland had nothing to lose, but we should also say t- took their chances phenomenally well. I mean, that, that finish for the third goal from Gavranovic, from where he is, 
all three of their goals, they made them look incredibly simple finishes and they were anything but. The Kovanovic finish was astonishing. The power he drove that in with enough curl to take it away from Lloris' glove is, is phenomenal. And yeah, kind of all power to them. I, I, I thought France would win it in extra time. I did. I thought they'd just kind of do what Carl refers to and kind of just grind it out and an A moment would come. And they did create a couple of the mo- those moments. But Mbappe was was pretty anonymous and that was probably the difference between France winning and going out I think mm, Zuba for Petkovic a taxi perhaps uh, for Deschamps while we're on the subject of great goals we should mention Paul Pogba's oh heaven help me my head fell off uh, I every now and again Paul Pogba does something and I am reduced to a screaming seven year old falling in love with football for the very first time and that was exceptional uh, Daniel, you tweeted, uh, Paul Pogba has been the best player at this tournament and he'd be the best midfielder in the world if he was at a highly functioning club, which is a really dangerous thing to mention with uh, Carl sitting here uh, with us. Could I counter that by saying, is it that he's in a team with Kante beside him? Could could that be the difference? Yeah, and that's that's basically what I mean by that. If, if Manchester okay. United had built a midfield around him, and I don't just mean giving him a free role and allow him to do what he wants. I mean, providing him with the tools that, you know, Carl's absolutely right that France have more weapons and more individual superstars than any other international team. But the the beauty of club football is you get to buy your superstars. You don't have to rely on what you find. And the reality is that I think Manchester United have, have sold him short. He hasn't been perfect by any means, and I, I'm not saying that. But when you look at the the natural talent and the joy that he plays with there isn't a midfielder I don't think that can other than maybe Kevin De Bruyne who can not just play the range of passes he does but also punish you in ways that you aren't expecting you can take a still of Paul Pogba on the pitch with the ball at his feet and you can guess where his next pass is going to be and I bet you'll get it wrong more times than you get it right because he just has this vision just to pick out different passes and yeah I just I He's nearly 28 now and it, it just feels, it feels it makes me feel a little bit sad when I see him scoring brilliant goals like that because I just think this could be you all the time. Mm. What did you make of his penalty? <laughs> I mean, his penalty was absolutely nonsensical, wasn't it? I mean, <laughs> the confidence of the man is 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 like nothing to behold. I mean, I would be... A com- it goes without saying, but I'd be a complete nervous wreck in that situation and it was just... I mean, you couldn't have... I wouldn't have been able to reach and put the ball in as good a position in the top corner as that. It's also a mention of just Pogba is good at international football, right? International football mm. is ever so slightly different tactical demands to domestic football. And I've got a column going out in The Athletic that will be up on Tuesday mm. about this, about how essentially, you know, club football very much is about weak links. So you spend ages refining and adapting your systems to make sure that you hide your own team's weak link and then you try and exploit... The oppositions and over a 38 or so league format eventually all works out based on how much money you earn capitalism all right international was a bit closer to i think a strong link sport so you do get these games where you can have a carry job by a superstar and i think there is something about the way international football manifests itself where you have teams that want to press high up the pitch but also don't apply pressure in the sanctuaries where paul Pogba just has an extra two or three seconds in central midfield and he's allowed to play some of these absurd passes he got a pass off I think just before the end of 90 minutes where he sort of hit it with the outside of the boot and it went wide right and I just sort of went you, you can't do that for Manchester United because most Premier League teams at least in the top half will have someone in front of him at all points in time mm. going do not let that man get five seconds on the ball is that why Granite Xhaka looked so amazing in a similarly quarterbacky fashion in this and, and doesn't necessarily in the in the Premier League. Similar. I think there is something about the way international football is structured and the fact that in the fact that you have basically three sessions to teach what you take 60 sessions to do in club football, which means mm-hmm. you have to compromise. And at some level, you cannot improve players so much. So it's, what are you good at? I'm going to put you in this position. And also I think there is something about international football and something about the nature of single elimination games, especially in knockout football, that it just serves to clarify the mind, right? So... Granite Xhaka is making passes for Switzerland that he is deciding he, that he possibly won't do for Arsenal because if he doesn't make that pass for Arsenal, oh well, league format, blah, 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 blah. If he makes this pass for Switzerland, he's a folklore. He's a hero, right? And the fact that after Switzerland were victorious, he was spit, you know, talking to camera and tapping the camera and whatnot, he's going to dine off on that performance for years. 
And that's probably mm. like, oh, well, what have I got to lose? What have I got to lose, I think, is a far stronger component in uh, a football player when they're playing international football in a knockout than I suppose it would be on a wet Wednesday night against Stoke. Tony, you were mentioning the ability to sign players at club level, but um, would today's result have been different, world of, hy- of the hypothetical, if Spain hadn't signed Amaric Laporte? I mean, I'm not privy to those details, but from as a, as a relative outsider's point of view, he seemed to leave with little so much as a shrug from, from Deschamps and, and the French mm. camp. Uh, but when you watch Clement Longley have his boots stuck to a floor while a six foot two inch striker is jumping probably three foot above him in the air you do wonder whether I mean Laporte is not a you know he's not a a nail and a kind of strong arm defender but he is a good defender and I mean they were slightly impacted by injuries in this tournament we should say that they wouldn't have Mm. played the 3-5-2 if if Luca Hernandez or, or Luca Dean had not been injured but uh Longley is is not a good center back and there are a large number of French supporters who agree with me on that. Um, so, yeah, it's just a very strange one. A final thing on, on France that seems to have kind of come out after the game is that none of the French players went to console Kylian Mbappe after he missed the final penalty, which he was kind of forced to trudge off the pitch by himself and, you know, got a cursory handshake from Deschamps and then went off down the tunnel, which kind of plays into those rumours that the French camp was not well, it was it was one of those French camps rather than uh, the good type that they have at international tournaments. There's obviously been rumours about Giroud and Mbappe, and it, it, this did give some credence to that, I think. Right, people sitting on the bus with the curtains drawn, that kind of thing. Mm. <laughs> well, no doubt there are days of remorse and regrets and recriminations to come for Le Bleu. Uh, as for the Swiss, they'll be facing the, the Spanish next. Do you, after our performance in Sunday's stroke Monday morning's Totally Football Show, when we said there's no way the Swiss will be getting past the French, uh, Julian Laurent particularly emphatic on, on that theme, would you dare suggest that, the, that they can't get past Spain and get into a semi-final? Well, they've got form. and beat them in the opening game of the 2010 World Cup, um, 1-0. And then Spain went on to win that tournament. That I can confirm can't happen. Um, my only worry is 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 just this. You quite often see in tournaments, in the, especially in knockout stages, where a team gets a massive win, then they then just look a little bit flat. Remember, it, thinking particularly about Wales, Belgium, and then onto the the Portugal game where they just looked, you know, a bit after the Lord Mayor show. That's the worry. But they've 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 got good players. You know. They're, they're, they aren't just a you know a jobbing team. They've got one really interesting thing. So I can't remember where it was, but one of the interesting things about the Swiss is just they've got this team that's been together basically most of them since under seventeen level, and then through under nineteen and twenty one, they've played so much football together that they know everything. There's no surprises for them. So they'll need to be organised, but why not? All right, especially with Spain these days managed by Kevin Keegan, as we saw in uh, <laughs> Monday's earlier game. Uh, against Croatia. We'll get on to that then next. The Euros are here and we'd better make the most of them because they only come around every four, uh, five years. So if your bookie isn't making you feel special, then maybe it's time to find a new one. Yep, not so much carpe diem as carpa diem. Hmm. If the grass is greener on the other side, come and play on it. If your bookie's not giving you the best rewards, switch and you'll get a completely free £5 bet builder on England v Germany this Tuesday. Paddy Power. Pretty much bet builder bets only match one free bet, min two plus legs online exclusive must have previously deposited T's and C's apply and plus be gambling right or talk. And now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream direct TV satellite free. Hey Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get direct TV. What's the little birdie? What's it, Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream direct TV over the internet now. Oh sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream Direct TV without a satellite dish. Call 1 800 Direct TV. Terms or restrictions apply. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, Friday in St. Petersburg, it will be Switzerland against Spain. And it's the Spanish coming through an extraordinary match of their own earlier on Monday 
uh, 5-3 eventually. It was an eight-goal extra-time kind of extravaganza, starting off with the extraordinary, was it 47-yard own goal that kicked off the scoring for Croatia. Spain then managed to fight their way back to a 3-1 lead, only to see Croatia complete the comeback just ahead of the final whistle. And then into extra time they went, where the Spanish laid on a devastating 1-2, the first goal of which, kind of felt decisive, came from Alvaro Morata. Extraordinary stuff, uh, a springboard for Alvaro, a springboard for Spain, or worrying that they were so wide open. What would you think, guys? I think it's a bit of both. Spain created 10 chances uh, in, in, in the first half against Croatia, and they have had a surplus, an abundance of attacking chances throughout the group stages. And you know, if you're an XG stat nerd, you're thinking, okay, well, one of these days, everything's going to you know, revert to form and they're going to score loads of goals at once. And now they've got two games back to back where they've scored five. So here we go. Uh, this is very much a Spain that is growing into the tournament. I quite enjoyed Luis Enrique switching from cargo trousers to jeans for this game against mm. the, uh, Croatia. And Suit for the final, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm enjoying this little Pokemon-esque evolution in a manager's sartorial choices. And I think this, this Spain team have they have good parts. They play good football. And, and while you know, they similarly have uh, an abundance of resources, but rather than work to suppress or deny their opposition, they're going, we're just going to create more and more chances on the transition, as many as possible, and eventually we'll come good. Or eventually, Morata will have a moment and we'll lock in and he'll come good. And I think mm. both those things came to pass in the 120 minutes we saw on Monday. Should we just have a quick look back at, at the the own goal and uh, <laughs> Simon doing a, effectively doing a Paul Robinson on, on Pedri's long-distance back pass. That's the ninth own goal. I'm sure you saw this stat of this tournament, which is as much as all 15 previous European Championships put together. Uh, any ideas what might be behind this? Often at tournaments, there's a new ball or something which is causes the goalkeeper's problems, but I don't think it's that. I, I think it's a combination of physical fatigue with an improvement mm -hmm. in sort of the football, the general footballing ability of everyone at the Euros, right? So I'd say everyone still present or who's played a knockout game at Euro 2020 is probably more technically talented than the majority of players that went to Euro 2000, right? We've seen developments in sports science, the tactical boom, the statistical boom, more players are two-footed, more players are able to do more things that can put football players, put opposition players into awkward positions. I also think we've, as Daniel's written many times, we played a domestic campaign where we put 10 months of football into nine months and it's massively truncated and everyone's really tired. So you've got players who are able to play spectacular back passes like Pedro did. So that is a 30, 40 yard back pass and he's put backs, he's put spin on it. So that is technically a fantastic ball. And if I put spin on it, it'll bounce and it'll take some of the edge off and then my goalkeeper will be able to collect it quite easily. But you've also got the goalkeeper who's just a bit knackered and not paying attention and it's just gone straight past them. It's like, oh, well, I can appreciate the artistry of what you've done here but also I'm a little bit too tired to appreciate the artistry and now we've got an own goal. And I think that's what you're seeing. You're seeing a bunch of players who are more physically capable and more imaginative than we've ever seen before in our lives who are also knackered. So you're seeing more mistakes than you will ever see, uh, perhaps ever, or at least until the World Cup in 18 months. Mm. The, pedant in, the pedant in me should also say that until mm, 2008 maybe, uh, own goals were really badly classified at, at international tournaments. Like the famous example is Wayne Rooney's, which is, I mean, that the, that exact <laughs> same goal is given as a Chesney own goal when he does it uh, in this tournament, and he's given to Rooney in 2004. So that has played into it that we're seeing more technically given own goals. And the tournaments are bigger nowadays, so there's more matches. You know, there's bigger sample size as well. I guess. Of course. Anyway, yeah. Spain fought back from that disastrous start. Pablo Sarabia with the, the first, and then Cesar Azpilicueta with his first ever goal for Spain, 
at 31 years old. And then Ferran Torres to put them 3-1 up. And, and given that Croatia's goal at this point had actually been scored for them, uh, their chances of a Croatian comeback look really slim until Zlatko Dalic threw on Orsic and Pazalic and they swung it. Well, at least they took it to extra time. Yeah, Orsic, who is a fascinating footballer because he's of an age and with an ability where you'd think he'd be in a, a big European league now and yet he's 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 at Zagreb. Uh, he's been in Korea, he's been in China. Um, he's never really kicked on and he didn't even make his Croatia debut until 2019 and yet completely changed the game. Just the running with the ball. I think one thing we are seeing in this tournament and maybe... Maybe that's why we're seeing these late comebacks is the difference, especially in the games played when it's hot, the difference in freshness between the players that come on the pitch and the players they're facing. It's almost a situation now, I think, where managers have to think, right, well, why don't we just bring on a player in this position because the guy he's facing looks absolutely shattered and it might change the game. <laughs> and I think that that happened, really. And I think also it's just his direct boring just spooked Spain. Um, the issue came uh, for Croatia by the fact that they'd also press really high all game to try and kind of close off Spain's space. And therefore, by extra time, they were just dead on their feet. It was a really good example of, of game state. So we saw a Croatia team that, well, they very much, there were times where you could see Croatia noticeably had their tails up. And it very much looked at the start of the second half, especially that they were trying to press her up the pitch to force further back passes from Spain. So basically go, the goalkeeper's conceded one from a back pass. Can we try and get him to do another one? Um, and I, I also think Croatia more or less conceded their third goal to Spain because they weren't switched on after the water break, which is, I think, another weird wrinkle we haven't quite considered to Euros. Not only is home advantage maybe a thing, also maybe not, but some of these games are going to have water breaks and some of these games are not. And uh, what we saw in the Premier League during Project Restart, there were definitely managers that were very good at using the water breaks. I know Ralph Hassan was very good at using the water break at Southampton. I'm not sure who's thinking about using the water break as a tactical break or a pressure valve yet in the Euros, mostly because I don't think any of these managers know if they're going to get a water break until week of the game. But then they had the mini break before the extra time. And after, the Croatia had that big chance, which Simon got, got down well, uh, to stop and and then came Morata's moments and and as everyone then concluded he has silenced his critics. I wonder though, has he? Uh, Emma Hayes, who'd been pretty eloquent on on the topic of Morata as as other subjects in the course of the game, that basically that he represents a problem for Spain tactically because they can't really play a, a, a natural game for them because they can't count on their centre forward to actually score the goals. So most of what you would expect to do around your centre forward just doesn't apply to them. Is that Does that continue to be the problem or, or has Morata, as I say, resolved that? I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a whacking great cliche, but the reason he gets criticism is that he misses chances. But if you are a striker and you're getting four or five chances a game, it suggests that either the midfielders behind you are enough of a creative force that it, it, they can allow you to miss some of those chances or that you're making the right runs to get into positions to get them. And there's probably a mix of the two. But as Enrique has said over and over and over again, the only reason he gets criticised is because his runs are so good and he makes such good space, which to be fair, he did for that fourth goal. You know, he'd also played 195 minutes at that point, and yet he'd just to drop back for the cross to sense where it's going to be. The first touch is brilliant. The second touch is the fabulous finish. And in those moments, you can see why, yeah, OK, we've built to have you in this team. There's very little point dropping you now because you can still do it and you are getting the chances. Well, it'll be interesting to see how he gets on against the Swiss. Sad to see Luka Modric leaving the competition. Uh, with all sorts of questions, I guess, about his international future. Although uh, Uri yesterday on, on the show was pretty confident that given the proximity of the next World Cup and the fact that the Croatians had done quite well, that he would stick around. Uh, given Croatia's performance and given how the Czechs got on on Sunday, knocking the Netherlands out, were England actually in the group of death? And would Scotland suddenly have turned out to be good if they'd made a, a, a knockout <laughs> stage fixture? I, mean, I don't quite go that far, but I think the one thing, the kind of flip side to that that's really interesting is that everyone had Group F down as this, you know, where the monsters lay. And yet France and Portugal have already gone out. Hungary obviously were eliminated and just Germany left. So 
yeah, I mean, obviously they will certainly march to the final because I'm desperately trying to jinx everything. But um, <laughs> yeah, I just think it's... I had in my mind before the tournament that playing tough group games would stead you really well for the tournament, the knockout stage. Actually, from what we've seen at the moment is the opposite, is that the teams that are able to really ease through the group, you know, Italy and Belgium, they've been the ones that have been best set for for knockout progression. And again, that makes it sound awfully like I'm predicting England to win. I think the interesting thing for England is Southgate, in March, said he watches France and he watches Portugal. And, and those are the teams he was trying to replicate, right? So England came through Group D playing Deschamps-esque, Santos-esque style football about using your abundance of footballing resources to deny Croatia, to deny the Czech Republic and to suppress Scotland to a slightly lesser extent. Um, and yeah, they only really had six shots on target in that group stage, but they kept their opposition down to five shots because that's how France do it. That's how Portugal do it. And the interesting thing now is he's going to play Germany going, right, well, the two teams I've been aping for ages have just been knocked out because they are so adherent to this style of football that essentially reduces international games of football to a coin toss. Do you stick with the system that you want to do, the very Group F style of football to play Germany, or do you free everyone and unleash what you need to unleash against Germany. So uh, I'm, I'm thoroughly looking forward to England playing 3-4-3. Well, next up then, let's discuss Tuesday afternoon's game at Wembley. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman, host of The England Show, brought to you by The Athletic. Every day throughout Euro 2020, myself, a host of The Athletic's brilliant writers, and some special guests have been bringing you a daily podcast focusing on Gareth Southgate's team. So, for expert insight and post-game reaction, search for The England Show wherever you get your podcast or via the Athletic app. And I'd do it sooner rather than later, if I was you, because England are playing Germany on Tuesday, so let's be honest, we don't really know how many more of these shows we have left. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. So, Azerbaijani linesman, gazetteers, the Southgate pen, the ghost goal, and Berlin... Never forget Berlin. And now it's here, the latest England-Germany. So facing Germany in the last 16 of the Euros, having topped the group, having not conceded a single goal at Wembley in front of the biggest crowd of the season. Daniel, during your long months of lockdown, if you could have dreamt of a perfect Euro fixture, would it have been kind of this? Yeah, although it's it's both perfect and horribly imperfect in that it forces us through. There are about... 20 minutes generally every two years although three years in this case where I am envious of people that don't love football and they are the 20 minutes after England have been knocked out of a major tournament and I say that because my club side doesn't even get close enough really for that to happen um yes it's horrible it's gut-wrenching it's uh, I've been kind of troubled by angst for about three or four days and I can't imagine what the players and management are feeling as well and yet 
it doesn't feel arrogant to suggest that England have got a good chance and that if England play to the best of their abilities and the Germans play to the best of their abilities, it will be very close. It will come down to oh. moments. And I just, I mean, my recurring wish is that rather than hitting the inside of the post in the first 15 minutes, which England have done in all three of their games so far, um, maybe this time it just goes three or four inches to the left or right and, and England get the goal they need. Because I, I one thing I can say with confidence is I do think that first goal is going to be absolutely massive. I feel like it goes more like 2010 Germany-England if we concede first than um, than I would ever wish. Well, the men in charge of bringing Daniel his 20 minutes of misery extra early <laughs> in this tournament are uh, the love bunch. To get a heads up on what dastly plans they've been drawing up, uh, let's... Now, here from Raphael Honigstein, who's actually going along to Wembley this evening. So, mind Freund, we meet again. Hi, James. Lovely to speak Hi, to you. Hi, Rafa. And to you too, and especially on such a, well, momentous day, England at Wembley. Are you going to yawn and tell us it's just another game? No, it's not just another game. It's a big one. I always enjoy... Germany playing at Wembley, uh, so do the Germans, and I'm looking forward to that one tremendously. Excellent. You're going along uh, Tuesday evening. I am going. I'm what are you going most this. looking forward to? So many games have been actually really entertaining and fun, even the ones that didn't look like that would be fun, like Germany-Hungary. It was tremendously exciting. So I just love the fact that there is a big game going on and I'm privileged to see it with fans mm. You know, with huge stakes, with history and all these things. It's it's just a proper big occasion and I'm just happy that I can be there. Woof, you mentioned that Hungary game, which must have been a bit nerve-wracking for you. You did get through the group, though. What, what following that is the big question on German supporters' minds? Well, exactly. I mean, will we see the Germany that played against Hungary and barely scraped a 2-2 draw? Or will we see the Germany that more or less dissembled Portugal in, in a pretty impressive fashion. Nobody knows because we haven't seen a consistent side of this Germany team now for the best part of five years, really. Since since year 2016, it's been very up and down. We won Confederations Cup, then had the terrible Russia experience, then had some really strange results, strange experiments. And... There's on the one hand this hope that, you know, we will do what German teams have done in the past, which is to somehow come together during the tournament and really get going and, and go all the way and and find ourselves. But there's also, I think, a reasonable fear or anticipation that it could all be over come Tuesday night. So I'm at a complete loss what to make of this team. My sense is that some players themselves feel feel very similar, which makes it so exciting um, you just don't know what this Germany will do and at the same time you still also don't know entirely how good this England team already really are and that I think gives it a very unpredictable but very exciting sheen to this game mm. and let's talk about Jamal Musiala after his game-changing cameo against Hungary a lot of talk in the UK that he could start for Germany on Tuesday you know with all the rich narrative background to that I think it's unlikely that he'll start. I think Löw will want to keep him as an impact sub. At the same time, he wouldn't be faced. You know, he started against Lazio in the Champions League and was outstanding and scored a goal a couple of days before his 18th birthday. And you saw the kind of freshness and the uh, the cutting edge he brought into the game when he came on against Hungary. Also, this typical sense of not really being phased by the occasion that you often get with, with young players. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see him in action at some stage, but I don't think it'll be from from the very start. I think there are other options available, especially now with Müller foot being fully fit again and perhaps Goretzka coming into the midfield. Uh, we won't have that many available places left, I think. OK. Uh, meantime, another young player, Jadon Sancho, uh, still yet to get his first start in this tournament. How big a mystery is that for German football fans? Sancho has been, without a doubt, one of the outstanding, most exciting performers of the last two and a half years. I mean, he's been the player that could play for Bayern 
uh, from Dortmund along with Erling Haaland. There aren't that many when you combine the two 11s that would make the journey from yellow and black or black and yellow to red and white, but he'd be one of them. And he's somebody who scores goals, makes assists and always has an impact and makes people sit up and, and take note when he gets on the ball. He's He's one of those players that makes things happen. So to not see him involved at all when many people in Germany, me included, thought that he might be England's star at this Euro, you know, the one player that actually really shines and makes this his competition perhaps, has come as a huge surprise and a disappointment. But in this particular game, I'd be very happy for him not to be involved, of course. Okay, Rafa. So what's your biggest fear then from Germany's point of view for Tuesday evening? My biggest fear is that Germany once more will not really turn up with any real cohesion. I think they're very good individual players, probably more or less on a par with England, but England have been much more competent and fun- well-functioning and more in tune with their own game plan. You might not enjoy it very much, it might be a little bit dull, but it has worked and you could see what they're trying to do with Germany. There's a lot more improvisation and lots of different players sort of doing doing their own thing, trying to do the stuff well that they do at, at club level and some are hoping that thrown together it'll work out, but there just isn't that same sense of a team turning up. And it's very unusual for a Germany team in recent years to not have that sense of unified purpose and, and togetherness, which is tactical. They have it in terms of team spirit. They have it in terms of the mentality. I don't think you can fault this team in, in on those counts. But we've seen very little to suggest that uh, there's a real unit playing with with a kind of collective idea that you get from from the better sides, both at this level and certainly at club level. And that's my biggest fear. I hope that they'll somehow change and somehow they'll they'll find something that 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 changes things for them when when it matters most. But I'm not that confident and I would make England slight favourites to go for it. Raphael Honigstein, uh, England slight favourites. Is that how you're feeling, Carl? I'm absolutely not falling for that. No, I know, I know when the opposition is playing possum. When I, <laughs> I refuse to not engage. I've not looked up any highlights from Euro '96 or any previous games. I, I'm not looking at the historic history of the England Germany rivalry. I am simply focusing on lineups and even then I'm hiding my thumb over Joshua Kimmich because if I stare too long at where Kimmich might stand it makes me have hyperventilation so I'm just just going to go to Wembley and try to stay vaguely civilized and I'll most likely fail by the 30th minute. Okay the Kimmich issue for you is what if he's going to be playing as a wing back or something? If Kimmich who in my belief is probably top five possibly top three in the world as a number six, if Yogi Lowe decides to play him as a number six, that will dramatically swing things in favour of Germany, in my opinion. Um, Yogi Lowe, as far as I'm aware of, has made it quite obvious that he wants Kimmich to play as right back, right wing back, which sort of plays into England's hands somewhat. I, I'm imagining if Germany do play wing backs, they, they will not press too high up the pitch. I can't imagine them trying to pen in England's England's wide players because if you do that there's just far too much space in behind and you basically you don't want to create a system where Kane has runners and space out wide so um, if Kimmich does play he will most likely be a slightly deeper wing back uh, and this this is why I cover him up when I think about it because if I start talking I'm not going to stop so please move on huh. and talk to Daniel and save me <laughs> Alright what, what about England's lineup then should he be in it Daniel? I think uh, I think we'll go three at the back. I think we will go with wing backs. If I'm Gareth Southgate cautious, I just play re- kind of regulation wing backs. If I'm, do you know what? You get one shot, go for it. I'm playing Bakaya Saka at left wing back, uh, so I can also get Jack Grealish into the team. Um, Ooh! Or yeah, producer Charlie wildly nodding at that one. You are a listener as well, aren't you? I don't mind it being Foden, which I suspect Southgate feels is a little bit more flexible in terms of if you want to drop a midfielder, 
back. Uh, his big issue with Grealish is that he thinks he's brilliant when you give him license, but maybe this isn't the game for license. I know fans are clamouring for it, but I, I, I actually see the opposite. But I do like the idea of Saka playing as a wing back, just to fly down that flank and try and pen Kimmich back, as Carl refers to. Um, but I will, I'm not confident. I should say. Right, no, I, I got that. Um, we've seen a lot of these big teams with incredible collections of attacking players. Your, your Portugal's, your France's, not really get the best out of them. And you know, England so far, for all the Foden's and Grealish's and Saka's, etc., and Harry Kane's, just a couple of goals from Raheem Sterling. Mm. That has been by design. There's no doubting that. I'm not saying that Southgate didn't want us to score more than two goals in the group stage. But as I say, we hit the post three times and he said he, you know, he's had four attacking players on the pitch and he's wanted more and he will have wanted goals from Kane. But this has been by design. If you look at when Croatia and the Czech Republic have been successful in the group stage, it's when they've been allowed to have time on the ball to grow into the game and then hassle and harry their opponents. And Croatia pressed Spain brilliantly. They weren't able to do that to England. And that isn't a coincidence. That's because we set up the way we did and people might not like it. And I I agree with them if we then limp out at playing the first good team we play or the first elite opponent we play. But we have done that by design. And if, if today has shown us anything, it's that the group stages don't mean anything it's just about how you perform in that one-off occasion and in those probably four or five crucial moments Carl what's the big question on your mind then apart from where Kim is going to play <laughs> uh, well the question uh, the midfield central midfield areas I think uh, having watched the Czech Republic victory something that was telling for me was the substitutions Southgate you so initially it was Calvin Phillips Declan Rice and uh, Jack Grealish. And then what was interesting was Phillips dropped in to create a back three with England, to create a 3-1-6, which is a very Liverpool-esque, Manchester United-esque, Real Madrid-esque sort of way to progress the ball up. Um, that's typically Henderson's job when he's at Liverpool. So Phillips was playing Henderson. But then when Henderson came on at halftime for Declan Rice, Henderson was his box-to-box version that you sort of saw in 18-19. So I'm going, okay. So even if, if Henderson does play in this midfield, I'm expecting Calvin Phillips to be one of the central pivots and Henderson to be basically a shuttler, which if you still think Jordan Henderson is the reason why England lost against Croatia in 2018, maybe that makes you feel some sort of way. And what we also saw after that was when Grealish came off, please forgive me if I got the substitution wrong, but Jude Bellingham eventually came in. So you had a midfield by the end against Czech Republic of Calvin Phillips, uh, Jordan Henderson and Jude Bellingham. Jude Bellingham was basically playing the role that is meant to be Mason Mount's job. Jordan Henderson was doing a job that Jordan Henderson sometimes does for England and sometimes does for his club. And Calvin Phillips was doing the job that that Jordan Henderson normally does for his club as number six, which is that very, okay, it was sort of a very weird dress audition for what that midfield could look like against Germany. So I think you've got your Gernessee against Germany is a Phillips-Mount-Henderson midfield but it's not going to be Henderson as the deepest lying person as a six. You're going to see Henderson basically work as a shuttler and you're also going to see Mason Mount working as a shuttler. And I think both of those gentlemen... Oh, even though he's just come back from the quarantine? If if Mason Mount is available, I think Mason Mount most likely comes right. straight into that side and play next to Jordan Henderson and, and Calvin Phillips. Uh, I, I could quite easily see Declan Rice making way in from the starting lineup. No disrespect from Declan Rice, but I, I think... There is just something about Germany and how they want to play, especially if they go Kimmichless in that uh, central midfield that will ask for a slightly different type of dynamism. Right. Well, that's what's coming up Monday afternoon. And of course, whoever wins at Wembley will be facing the team that comes through the other last 16 match, the final last 16 match, which will be played a Tuesday evening in Glasgow between Sweden and Ukraine. Quick chat on that next. We're all driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. According to their own survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. 
Remember the last time you were hiring and how slow and overwhelming it was? Well, you don't need to go through all that again. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent. And because you listen to The Totally Football Show, Indeed is going to give you a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Totally. That's I-N-D-E-E-D.com slash Totally. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed at Indeed.com. This is The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Curious scenario, Sweden taking on Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine, who had Sweden to thank last week for actually making it into the last 16. Uh, that was courtesy of Sweden beating Poland, which made Ukraine qualify as one of the best third-place sides. Supporters actually hung a giant Ukraine-Sweden flag in front of the Swedish embassy in Kiev with the message, thank you, Sweden, for the round of 16. So that was <laughs> nice. Uh, but of course, all that's forgotten now as they go head to head for a place in the quarterfinals. Ukraine have only played Sweden once in a competitive match and they beat them. It was Euro 2012. The scoreline was 2-1. Can you guess who got the goals? Mm, or maybe remember it was, even. It was England's group, so I'll guess Zlatan. Zlatan got the Swedish goal and the two for Ukraine were by... Shevchenko. Exactly. Yeah. Woof. All right, Zlatan's not going to be there this time. Sweden... On one hand, haven't been missing him because they, they came top of Spain's group. They took Coco off the top of the table faster than Cristiano Ronaldo <laughs> um, and went through unbeaten and all that kind of thing. But have they, when I look at the figures, actually been a bit dull? Fewer successful passes, had the lowest passing accuracy, lowest average possession? I, I, I think they've actually... Sweden, I think, were one of the few teams in the group stages that actually played two different ways in that they completely shut down... Spain. I mean, to to an extent, it became parody. They had fifteen percent possession, but they got the draw in the against the hardest team in the group that they they assumed rightly would see them through, and eventually saw them through top of the group. And then, I think against in their other games, Slovakia tried to shut them down, but they eventually got past them. And and Poland basically couldn't do anything to stop them. Emil Forsberg, I, I think, has been one of the players of the tournament. He starts out on the mm. left and he makes these runs where he, almost like Dumfries did for Netherlands the other night, where you, you're not noticing him and he just runs right from one side of the pitch and kind of arcs his run round and ends up almost on the right-hand edge of the box. That's how he scored the, the second goal against Poland. And yeah, between him and Alexander Isaac, I think they've got two potential match winners there, which I think is one more than Ukraine have got. Okay. Uh, Ukraines would be who? Yarmolenko or Yarmolenko? Yeah, Yarmolenko. I mean, Yarmchuk has been decent in this tournament, but there's a lot of mercurial players in that Ukraine side yes. where they click and you think, well, ha hang on, where have you been for the last two years? Um, so, yeah, I think Sweden will just have enough. Yarmolenko has a very particular tell, at least during his West Ham days. It's sort of almost baby Robin-esque where he would drop the shoulder and then try and get a shot away. Uh, and he's not done it as much at this tournament. Uh, the goal he scored against the Netherlands was a very Unyarmolenko type goal. My apologies for the English pronunciation of his of his surname there. He could this is the this is the joy of international football, right? Single elimination game, ninety minutes. He could catch fire. He could just have. He could just do that goal he always does. Um, and I think there's been such bizarre reckonings in, in Monday's games that why not? Yeah, I'm going to say Ukraine are going to win. All right. And it's always fun as well watching Zinchenko playing without um, adult supervision in the sense that he doesn't have Pep telling him, no, you did this, that, the other. And, <laughs> yeah, she goes out and has a good... Something that's a lot of fun with Zinchenko is he's quite a good cheat. But he's just, he's really sneaky and very good at going right up to the line of respectability. And then when the referee looks at him too much, just stepping back, going, sorry, sorry, sorry. And then just beginning the process anew. Uh, he's uh, very good at giving away multiple fouls without getting yellow carded yet. And uh, mm. that, that's a valuable skill. A mm. very valuable Absolutely. skill. It's a lot more fun predicting the winners of other quarterfinals, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> How quick Carl and I were to tire. <laughs> so Carl's so. gone Ukraine. What have you gone with, Daniel? I've gone Sweden 2-1. Right. Okay. All right. Then. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, all that's coming up on Tuesday. Very shortly, we'll have a bit of classic Uranus with On This Day. But first is erstwhile producer Ben with Paddy Power. 
Thank you very much, Jimbo. I'm on the line with Carl Moynihan from Paddy Power. Carl, let's look ahead to the only game that matters tomorrow, assuming you're not Swedish or uh, from the Ukraine. It's England and it's Germany. I've got a bet builder that I'd like you to price up, please. Here it goes. It's probably not very good. Um, I think they're going to be fewer than two goals in this game. One red card. England aren't going to lose in the 90 minutes. And Harry Kane is going to score. Is this decent value? Right, so we'll get this bet builder started, but first, Ben, I must say we have a free five quid bet builder bet for the massive last 16 clash between England and Germany for all Paddy Power customers, both new and existing. So make sure you don't miss it. And now we're going to start off the bet builder with over 2.5 goals, like you requested, 11 to 10. We know England have not conceded yet and have scored just twice in the tournament. But in the last couple of games involving Germany, there's been well over 2.5 goals scored, with six obviously scored in their win against Portugal and four in the draw uh, with Hungary this German team vulnerable at the back to say the least I think and going through a transitional period and with England's pace in attack surely this will point to an open game with more than a few goals now a red card in the game is very interesting nine to two and of course there's a great rivalry isn't there between the two sides Andy Moeller sticking his chest out to the English fans at Wembley in Euro 96 after his winning penalty is a memory that still lingers, I'm sure, for plenty of people. Of course, red cards in the knockout stages can be critical. The double chance market is interesting. England and the draw in 90 minutes is 4-2-11. If you think England won't be beaten within the 90 minutes, this is certainly the bet for you. As you can see, it's a very short price indeed at 4-11, as the traders think it's highly likely. And with England yet to concede in the tournament so far, we could be in for a long night of nail-biting anxiety at Wembley. And then to finish off the bet builder, how about this? He has to score at some point. Kane to score any time, 7-5. The Premier League's top score is more than due, and I think it's fair to say, and looked at times like his old self against the Czechs last week. So if England are to go all the way in this tournament, it will be Kane's goals that will be very much needed. So that's a 24-1 to bet builder, listeners. Best of luck if you get involved. The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. Find a bookie who loves you right back as much as Gareth loves right backs. Place a four plus fold bet builder on any football match and get money back as a free bet if one leg lets you down. Check paddypower.com for more details. £10 max free bet. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. BeGambleAware.org. Listener, sign up for a subscription with The Athletic, why don't you? For unrivaled coverage of Euro 2020, you get all the articles, all the podcasts ad-free. Except for this ad, you probably still get this ad in there. And Q&As with writers as well. It's all just £1 a month for your first six months. So head to theathletic.com slash totally. Uh, on this day in Euro's history, it's the 29th of June. I'll save you checking. And on this day in 2008, Spain won their first major trophy since 1964. Euro 2008 it was against Germany in the final. Could history repeat, etc. and so on. On this day, meanwhile... In the year 2000, in Amsterdam, Netherlands and Italy took part in one of the most memorable semi-finals ever. It was memorable, wasn't it? The Dutch, you'll recall, were the host nation and were massive favourites. The stadium was packed with supporters in orange shirts, whose hopes took a boost when Gianluca Zambrotta got his second booking just about half an hour in, and the jury were down to 10 men. However, the match was to turn out to be a nightmare that would haunt Fans of the Orangi until this day. Uh, missed penalties for Frank De Boer and Patrick Clivert. Then in the eventual shootout, Frank Raggard's side missed three of their first four penalties. De Boer again and Bosvelt and um, that quite a hefty kick from Yap Stam, which is still out there uh, somewhere. Stam comes from ver. Oof, over het hoog en wat over. No, 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 no. This can't be any more than that Netherlands is outgeschakeld, so you say. Hero for Italy. Well, there were two, really. And both of them were called Francesco T something. You had Toldo, the goalkeeper, who'd only been called up at the last minute for the tournament, saved three of the five missed penalties, and was man of the match, and then went in the man of the tournament and all that sort of stuff. But of course, it's really famous, I mean, for me anyway, for the other Francesco T, Totti. Uh, who, who told the players when it went to a shootout you probably know the story he stood there talking with Di Biagio and Maldini and uh, Di Biagio says I'm really scared that guy pointing to Van der Sar is really big <laughs> and Totti says uh, don't you worry je faccio cucaio. I'm going to do a, I'm going to do a spoon kick I'm going to I'm going to do a penenka and Maldini says are you crazy we're in the semi-final of a European championship 
but he, he was and he did and, and, and there you go he named his memoir that title was it not at least in the Italian yeah film, he did you're right aware of. yeah um, the great game I mean the Netherlands are football's Prometheus they've given us so much to improve the game but they are cursed by the gods to not enjoy the profits apart from that one time when they, they certainly time. did that one time <laughs> Marvellous. All right. Well, uh, that was on this day. And uh, I'm sure in years to come, we'll be looking back on Monday, yesterday, as, as being a very special on this day. And, and thank you so much for accompanying it, putting your word source all over the picture pudding that we had between the Croatians and the Spanish and and the Swiss and, and, and the French. Magnificent stuff, Karl Anker. Magnificent stuff, Daniel Story. I hope Tuesday goes as smoothly and, and, and calmly as, as it can and that football is the real winner and all that kind of thing. Yeah, excellent. I mean, the fun thing is there's another game afterwards, so that's just a nice little palate cleanser from any potential. Right, yeah, yeah, excellent. Good, well, after that other game afterwards, we'll be back with another Totally Football show, recording it anyway, and that'll be with you early Wednesday morning. Our voices hoarse with excitement. Who knows what we'll be talking about then? Tune in to find out. For now... Daniel Story, Carl Anker, producer Charlie, and you, listener, thank you very much. And speak to you soon. And have yourself a lovely time in the meanwhile. Ciao. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Keep up to date with everything Totally at The Totally Show on Twitter and find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an athletic media company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.